Please stand. Man. Sorry I made you stand. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Picking up in John 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Um, as we remain standing, I want to invite the kids who are registered for Sunday school to meet their Sunday school teachers. I see them there in the back. They're ready to go. And as the kids head down, would you join me in, in asking God's blessing on our Sunday school this morning? Lord, we thank you that we have a Sunday school, that we have teachers and volunteers who are going to care for our kids, keep them safe, and teach them about Jesus. And so we ask now, Lord, that you'd soften the children's hearts and you would plant seeds that would grow up into faith, hope, and love in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We are continuing in our sermon series on Genesis, looking at the life of Abraham. We're going to be in Genesis 15, which we heard read a moment ago. It's on page 11 in your blue pew Bible, if you want to open to that. Or if you have your own Bible with you, open to it. It would be helpful. I'm going to say some things today, some ideas that you wouldn't want to believe if they're my ideas. And I mean that. So I, I want you to see this coming from the Bible. And then between you and God, you can figure out what you're going to do with it. So I'd love you to have the text in front of you. Genesis 15 we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 21. For a long time, I mistook hard to be the opposite of good. I thought that if something was good, 
It must also be easy, immediately and always enjoyable, but hard, difficult, delayed. These things, at least in my mind, my subconscious, they were incompatible with something being good. Have you ever made that mistake, thinking that hard is the opposite of good or incompatible with it? I've come to see, as I look at the world, that quite often good actually requires hard. They go together. Take learning a musical instrument. You want to learn to play the piano? Good for you. That's a really good thing. You want to learn to play the piano? That's a really hard thing. Good luck. How about learn a language? Really good thing. Really hard. How about get in physical shape? Really good thing to do. It's really hard. How about maintaining a really healthy relationship? Really good thing to do, really hard. Or how many times growing up when I was being disciplined by my parents did I hear them say, I know this is really hard in the moment, but trust me, it's good for you. Hard is not incompatible with good. And in many cases, hard is an integral part of something actually becoming deeply good. Now, it's crucial to understand this relationship between good and hard if we're going to understand the Bible. At the center of the Bible's plot line is the announcement of good news. The main thing God is trying to say to you through the Bible is something good He says, here is my son. This is good news. He has died for you. He loves you. The very center of the Bible is good news. But we would be mistaken, we modern people, if we thought that the good news was easy news. What Dietrich Bonhoeffer once called cheap grace. Quite the contrary. The good news of Scripture comes with some very hard news. If you want to embrace the good news that you've been forgiven, you've got to embrace the good news or the hard news that you needed to be forgiven. Notice this pattern, the good and the hard interrelated. Notice this pattern all across Scripture. Give me give you a couple examples. Jesus announces the arrival of God's kingdom. Good news. But then he follows, not with a command to relax and put your feet up. He follows with a command to repent. Hard news. Jesus forgives a woman of her sins. Good news. And he follows up by looking at her and saying, go and don't sin anymore. Hard news. Jesus invites people to follow him and come to him like he did in our gospel reading and promises them true and abundant life when they come to him. That's good news. And he also says to people who come to him, deny yourself and pick up your cross. That's hard news. Jesus says to us, have no fear. I have overcome the world. That's really good news. And then he goes on to say, I am sending you into the world as sheep among wolves. That's really hard news. This is an unmistakable pattern in Scripture. 
Good news often involves hard news. What I want to help you see today is why this is not bad news. This pattern comes to the fore in our passage today in Genesis 15, 7 through 21. Here, God makes a covenant with Abraham, securing his future inheritance of the promised land. And God goes so far as to secure the covenant by the honor of his own integrity, essentially announcing to Abraham, your future in this land will come about, and if it doesn't, I'm cursed. To have your future in God's hands like that, that's really good news. And at the same time, as we're going to see in a moment, in the middle of the announcing of good news in this covenant, there is very hard news. News involving delay and almost unimaginable difficulty for Abraham and his family's future. So I want to move through this passage very simply. I want to help us see the good news. And then I want to help us understand the hard news And then I want to tell you why the hard news is actually essential to the good news and that this is not bad news. And this is very applicable for anyone in this room who lives between God making his promises and experiencing their full fulfillment. So first, let's just make sure we see and understand the good news in this passage. Last week, In Genesis 15, we looked at verses 1 through 6, and we saw that the theme there was reassurance. God is reassuring Abraham. Now, he reassures him in verses 1 through 6 that he will indeed have a child. He will have a son. The theme of reassurance continues in the second part of our passage, verses 7 through 21, but it shifts from reassurance about the son to reassurance about the land. Verse 7 And he, God, said to him, Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. You see the theme of land. Abraham's question then in verse 8 sets the stage for the rest of our passage. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, this question is not, at least I don't think, Abraham expressing doubt. We've just heard his faith extolled in verse 6. So I don't think he's backtrack at this point. This question is more like Mary's question to the angel Gabriel. When Gabriel announces to her, you're going to be with child. And she believes, but she just asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? This is a question not whether or not it will happen, but how's it going to happen? So Abraham is a lone person in a land occupied by many other warring tribes. And he's wondering, how's this going to be? Will they all leave? Am I to beat them down in war? Should we intermarry and assimilate? Should there be a peace treaty? How can I know? How is this going to happen? Abraham wonders. Now God answers his question in the rest of our section through making a covenant. And like You can see that in verse 18. It just says, And the Lord made a covenant with Abraham on this day. That's where everything lands. Now, like a modern-day contract, a covenant is an agreement between two parties that's legally binding. 
But in the Bible, a covenant is also more than this. It has a relational component. It often brings two parties together that were not formally family or kin, and it bonds them together in a relationship. So in this covenant, God is binding himself to Abraham's future, but he's also bonding himself to Abraham and his family in love. So that's what unfolds here. Now, it's a bit strange, the ceremony. I don't know if you picked up on that, but beginning in verse 9, when the covenant's made, God asks Abraham to get some animals. And in verse 10, he, has, he cuts some of them in half. Then he fights birds away. We don't understand this at all, but it, it, there's actually a very straightforward meaning to it. This was a common practice of covenant making in Abraham's day. So God is using something he would culturally understand. And in an ancient ceremony like this, animals would, would often be cut in half. And the parties, the two parties making the covenant, would sit between them or walk between them. And by doing so, the parties would be saying to themselves and to one another as they walk through the severed animals, they'd be saying, if I betray this agreement, may I die a horrible death like these animals. So it's almost like saying, cursed is me if I break this covenant. Now what's striking with this covenant here, after Abraham arranges the animals in verse 10, is that when we go down to verse 17, it's not Abraham who walks between them. Instead, we read verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What in the world does that mean? A firepot and a flaming torch. We find these images strange, but in Israelite, maybe in the days of Joshua or Moses wouldn't have been confused at all. They would remember that God often reveals himself to his people through fire and a pillar of cloud. Remember how he reveals himself to Moses? In a burning bush. Remember how he leads Israel through the wilderness. Or maybe you're new to Christianity, you don't know the story. God will lead Abraham's offspring through the desert for 40 years by appearing as a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. So they would know exactly what's going on. They would say, that's Yahweh. What is God doing walking between the animals? Here's what he's doing. And this is what brings us to the incredible good news of the covenant. God alone is taking responsibility for the promise. God is saying, in effect, let me become like one of these severed animals if I don't keep my word to Abraham. It's hard not to see a foreshadowing of the gospel here, of what Jesus does. If I may just put this in a footnote. When Jesus comes... He becomes the cursed one, the animal who's severed, because God's people haven't kept their end of the covenant, because we haven't obeyed him. We haven't kept our duty to honor him. And so a curse falls in front of us. And God says, no, remember I promised. If people don't keep the covenant that I make with creation and mankind, I will be cursed. And that's what happens when Jesus dies for us. He says, yeah, if humans break the covenant, I'll pay for it. So this is very good news, and we see something of the incredible logic of the gospel here as God himself humbles himself before sinners and walks through the severed bodies saying, cursed be Yahweh, 
if humankind doesn't find my promises coming true. So God not only promises to give Abraham the land, he enters into a contract, a binding covenant, saying he'll be the guilty party if things don't work out in the future. This is really good news. If you're a Christian, God has obligated himself based on his own honor to your future well-being. That's good news. But here is where this passage fell apart for me this week. I thought that would be the main thing. And then I came upon an interlude in verses 12 through 16 that upset me. And that's what I want to dig into with you now. In verse 12, something strange starts to happen. You almost could skip from verse 11 right down to verse 17 and you wouldn't miss a beat. God just promised Abraham, your future's in my hands. All good news. But instead, in verse 12, a deep, you see it there? A deep darkness and sleep fall upon Abraham. This is foreboding. It's almost like death has come upon the man. And the good news of the covenant all of a sudden is met with very hard news. And it seems what's happening in verses 12 through 16 is God is lifting up the hood and he's saying, this is actually how this is going to work. This is the process by which you and your descendants will actually possess the land. So here's what he says to him. See if you think this is hard news. Picking up at verse 13, he says, know for certain. You should just underscore that. Know for certain, Abraham, you're going to doubt this, but know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation, the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Skipping down to verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Abraham, good news. You're definitely going to inherit the land. Abraham, hard news. For 400 years, your ancestors will be displaced from the land. They will be sojourners in a place not their own. They will be enslaved. And make no mistake, they will be inhumanly and tyrannically treated. I think, and I'll speak for myself as a modern person who's been reared on these acronyms like YOLO and FOMO. You know YOLO, you only live once. You got to get it in, man. You got like 70 years at best. Or FOMO, fear of missing out. You got to have your best life now. Man, if I heard this, it would crush me. Sam, I have a great plan for you and your church. Here's how it's going to work. For 400 years. They're going to be the victims of tremendous injustice, displaced from that which is theirs, and greatly afflicted. But don't worry, after all that, I'll bring them back. How does a modern person who is so desperate for immediate gratification, how do they handle this kind of thing? So you can see this, right? Do you see what happened to me this week? How do you hold these two things together? This is, really, this is really hard news. And quite frankly, this kind of message, it happens all across the Bible. 
Church, you are born by the Spirit, and now you will sojourn in no great tribulation and be filled with martyrs prior to Christ's return. Individual, you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Your future is secure, and now you're going to be sanctified in the fire of hardship. Man. So, we have to spend our rest, the rest of our time wrestling with this. Because it's absolutely essential to being the people of God. And the, the last thing I just want to ask with you, the, the remainder of our time is, how is it, or I want to show you, that this hard news is not only incompatible with the good news, but it's actually integral to it. Or why the hard news being part of the good news isn't actually bad news. So God actually gives us two clues to how the hard news is actually good news in the passage. I'm going to take us to both. And the first clue comes in verse 14. In verse 14, God, God is basically saying you're going to be in captivity in Egypt for 400 years, but you're going to come out. In verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation, that's Egypt, that they will serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now the language of deliverance, in verse 14, I will bring you out, and the language of prosperity, you shall come out with great possessions, this strikes an important, albeit quiet note. God is actually signaling here that he's going to be doing something and working something good through the furnace of captivity. The season in Egypt is actually strategic. Now, let me show you how this works in just a few ways because we live on the other side of this. We, we know what happens. So how does the hard part of the good in God's economy based on the difficulty and hardship of going into Egypt. Well, first, think of Joseph. If you're new to the Bible, um, Joseph is Abraham's great-grandson, one of many great-grandsons. And at the end of Genesis, Joseph's story is recounted, and Joseph's own brothers, the other great-grandsons of Abraham, actually sell Joseph into captivity and is taken down to Egypt. So that's how they end up in Egypt in captivity, betrayal in the family. It's an unbelievable story. But once Joseph is in Egypt, strange things unfold. All of a sudden, he's favored because the hand of God is on him. He's promoted to one of the most powerful people in the nation. And through God-given insights, Joseph comes to realize that a crushing famine is going to fall upon northern Africa, up through the peninsula there, up into the land of Canaan. And Joseph is able to come up with a scheme where Egypt can keep their grain during the famine, and then, or excuse me, during a season of plenty, so they have it to give out to the world afterwards. And he actually, by doing this, saves the life, the lives of Abraham's descendants. Don't take my word for it. Here's Genesis 50, verse 20. This is famous. Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Just listen, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So at least one reason God says your descendants are going to end up in Egypt is because God's going to actually mysteriously keep them alive by this. He works in mysterious ways. Another thing where you see the hard become the good is if you think about the growth of Abraham's descendants in Egypt. When they go down to Egypt at the end of Genesis, they're a tiny little group of 70 people. They'd probably fit in like 
one section of the transept over here, okay? Not much to think about if you're talking about possessing the promised land. But by the time they leave Egypt, they're in the tens of thousands. And while they're in Egypt, we read that they multiply so fast, it perplexes and concerns the Egyptians so much so that in Exodus chapter 1, the next book of the Bible, Pharaoh enacts a plan to try to stop them from growing so fast, and it still doesn't work. The Hebrew wives give birth too fast, the midwives say, if you know this story. So they explode with growth. Then when they're being brought out of this hard season, we read that they were given so much treasure by the Egyptians because they found favor in the average person's eyes that we literally read, quote, that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. That's why it says in our passage, you'll come out with great possessions. Let me give you another thing that happens during this 400-year difficulty. Israel comes to know God not just as their creator, but as their redeemer and savior. And you can only know God as your redeemer and savior if you understand how badly you need to be saved so that he can manifest how well he can save you. So it's by going into this captivity under the most powerful regime in the ancient world that God can finally say to them, let me make one lesson clear for you, Egypt, and for you, Israel, and for all the people that come hereafter. There is no human power stronger than Yahweh, and I will lift a finger and I will raise the dead. Because nobody would have thought, nobody, that the Israelites could have come out of Egypt. Certainly not led by one man named Moses. So why'd God do that? So for the rest of the Bible... The people of God, and for the rest of history, the people of God never wonder whether or not this God can raise the dead. Those are just a few reasons. There's many more, many millions more of why God brings good news with hard news, and the hard news isn't necessarily bad news. And so to draw this into a lesson for us at this point, you might just say that When we receive the good news of God and we realize it doesn't mean our life will be easy. When we like take those passages honestly where Jesus says take up your cross, you will suffer. And we realize that not every prayer is answered in the immediate way we want. When we, when we walk through that, we can either, either say this hardness is a sign that God is not good and he's not for me. Or we can pause and say I don't understand how right now, but I know it's not unusual for hard to be part of the good and I know that according to God's sovereign plan the fire of affliction becomes the furnace of formation and he's doing something to purify you as gold right now and so that's the first lesson that I think we see with why the good often has hard because God is doing so many more things than we can imagine, and they unfold according to his mysterious purposes. But they are not bad because they're hard. There's only one thing you take away from this sermon. I would want it to be that hard is not necessarily bad in God's economy. So there's another insight into why there's this difficulty and delay in this. And if, if the first thing we said, maybe you could say, has to do with why is the hardness of difficulty still good? Because we get formed in that furnace. I would say this next one has more to do with delay. So if you wonder why God delays, why we've waited 2,000 years since Jesus came for him to return and complete, complete his project of renewing the earth. If you ever wonder about the delay, 
I think there's some insights into why delay is actually not bad news, but good news here. So in verse 16, God says, And they, meaning the Israelites, shall come back here out of captivity in the fourth generation. That's a way of saying after 400 years. A generation is about 100 years in the Old Testament here. They will come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's strange. You would think God would say, for I've finally done enough tilling. The soil's just right. Climate's perfect. It's ready for them. It's not what he says. In other words, their coming back after 400 years on one level has nothing to do with them. It has something to do with God interacting with this tribe called the Amorites. Now this verse about coming back when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete, this verse foreshadows what the Bible knows as the conquest of the promised land, which is enacted under the leadership of Joshua. It's in the book of Joshua. You can read it. And God is explaining here. He's saying when that happens, when Israel comes in and displaces this people, don't mistake it as being unjust. What's actually happening is that my justice is being meted out across the world according to my designs. Because God is the lone authority over the moral governance of the world. And later on, Israel themselves will be displaced from the land because of their sin. And God will use Assyria and Babylon to displace them. So if Israel is called to be a displacer of the sinners, it's no compliment. Because God can use Babylon and Assyria to do the same thing to them. Now, the sins of the Amorites are notorious. In both the Bible and the Chronicles of history, they're, they're too grotesque to read aloud in church. I have to ask some of you to cover your ears. And when Israel is about to enter the promised land and displace the Amorites, we hear things like this in the book of Leviticus. The Lord says, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these, the nations, the Amorites included, I am driving out before you because they have become unclean. And the land became unclean. Now listen to this. So that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. That phrase is used a lot for what happens when Israel comes into the land and displaces people. Is that the earth is vomiting out a contagion like our body would. It's like the planet knows these image bearers are supposed to be good for us. There's all this blood dripping down into the soil from Cain and Abel and all these stories. We can't take it. And the earth vomits him out. Now, we have to, I think, step back at this point to understand what's going on here. And we have to step back and think of the bigger drama unfolding in Scripture. Because what God's saying is this 400-year delay has to do with how I mete out justice. We have to remember that in Genesis, we see humanity rebel against God and choose their own way in Genesis 3. From Genesis 4 to 11, we looked at it last year, things just go from bad to worse. Before the flood, we read that the whole earth is corrupt and all flesh had corrupted their ways. And even after the flood, God brings judgment on the violence of humanity during the flood. He preserves humanity through Noah's ark and he preserves creation. And even after the flood... In Genesis 8, we read that man's heart is evil from his youth. So here's what you need to understand. In order for God's good promises to perfectly come, and at the center of his good promise 
is his returning to dwell with man. In order for that to happen, at the same time, God must complete his justice. Otherwise, he's not God. And you, modern person that you are, you wouldn't really want a story where injustice is swept under the rug, would you? So, for God's promise to be completed, judgment must be perfected. So you have to hold together the completion of God's promise with the completion of judgment in the biblical storyline. And this is true of those of us who live in light of the promises in Christ. Christ has come. He died for our sins. He ascends to heaven and he promises to return again, right? We want him to return. I mean, come on, come back, Jesus. It's been 2,000 years. Because you see, when he comes back, he's going to put all the wrongs to right. He's going to fix all the world's systems. He's going to make sure we don't die anymore. He's going to wipe away every tear. Why wouldn't this just happen? Well, guess what? When Christ returns to complete the promise, do you know what it also means? That he perfects justice? Do you not believe that? We say it every week in the creed. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Think about it when we say it. What does that mean? Do you believe that? It means that in order for God to complete his promises, he has to perfect his justice. So what's happening when there's a delay, and this is crucial for understanding what's going on in the world right now. This is the deepest vein of reality. What's going on with God delaying 2,000 years from coming as Christ and returning? What's going on when you feel in your own body the ache and pain of delay? You are actually feeling the soft, gentle kindness of God towards your neighbor. Paul makes it very clear. He says... God's forbearance and patience are his kindness, and they're meant to lead to repentance. Peter makes it even clearer. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, Abraham, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So you know what's going on in the world right now? It's been happening every day since Jesus ascended back to the Father. God is pushing forth on the world his tremendous mercy and grace. Rather than returning in judgment, he's offering to people a way to be cleansed of their sins. God is essentially saying every day, I want you to meet my son on his cross before you meet him on his throne. I want you to know me as the lamb that was slain with softness in my eyes before you meet me as the lion of Judah. God is pleading with his church to extend to the world the lamb that was slain for their sins. He holds back. What we experience as delay is the feeling of kindness and mercy wrapping around you, saying maybe this week you'll invite them to church. Maybe this week you'll pray for them. But please, please let them know that I have walked between the severed animals. I have borne the curse. Before I return as judge, I want them to know me as Savior. So let me wrap up. The Bible has good news for you, church, amazingly good news that will secure your eternal destiny and will secure you every day of your life.
We cannot follow the modern lie of assuming this means it's easy news because it's hard at times. But hard is not the opposite of good. That's a a lie. Don't believe it anymore. Hard may be at the essence of good. And know that in your difficulties, God is at work in that hardness. And know in the delay, God is at work in that hardness, forming you and pouring out his mercy and kindness toward those around you. So may we live in light of God's covenant with Abraham, both the good parts, but also the hard. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask now, Lord, that whatever whatever you want us to take from this time would sink into our hearts and anything else would fall by the wayside. In Jesus' name, amen.